This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good afternoon, everyone, on this exciting day. First day of back to school for many uh, young people. First day of school for some kindergarten students. It's all so very exciting. I love, 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 love my Facebook feed on this day each year to see all the youngsters so beaming and in their new outfits and with all their new stuff and really excited to get back at it. So uh, congratulations to all the kids out there. I know it's an exciting time for uh, students and parents. Well, as expected, the James Webb Space Telescope is continuing to wow observers here on Earth as it sends back extraordinary images from the farthest reaches of the universe. The James Webb Space Telescope, as you may recall, which is supported uh, supporting sorry the data collected by the Hubble Space Telescope, was launched on Christmas Day of last year, and it wasn't long before it started sending some pretty amazing images and data back that have been wowing scientists and members of the public alike. Well, here to discuss some of the amazing things the telescope has been able to show us is Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. Hello. Hi there, Linda. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Well, wow, what an exciting time. When last we spoke back in January, you started telling us about some of the things that James Webb was already sort of picking up on and some of the amazing things we were hoping to see or learn. Well, it's nine months later, and it hasn't been a disappointment. You're not wrong. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels like ages ago that we, we spoke just after the launch and we were, you know, crossing our toes and fingers that um, not only would the telescope get to its home uh, far away, but also that it would unfold and even turn on. Uh, we were hoping that all the instruments would start working. We were hoping that it would be able to take pictures and collect light. And I think it uh, exceeded those expectations. Um, in, in mid-July, we were finally able to share the first images with the world. And so we, we've come really far since we last spoke. And so it's great to be able to catch up. And it's almost like, uh, I, I can't explain it, but, you know, every time you go on to uh, uh, the NASA website or the European Space Agency website, there's new images every time. Indeed. <laughs> We've been really, really busy, mainly because we know the public is really eager for new pictures. So we're working really, really hard so that um, everyone can see new things every couple of days uh, from the telescope because we know the demand is there. And the huge momentum we got in the middle of July when the first images were released, we wanted to definitely ride off that wave of excitement and eagerness from the public so that we could keep that going with new images uh, and shortly new science discoveries as well. So what prompted me to give you a call, of course, were, were the images that were sent out, I think it was last week or in the last 10 days or so, of some exoplanets. I guess I'll start with the basic. What is an exoplanet? So an exoplanet is a, a term that's used for any planet that lies beyond our own solar system. So, of course, for you and I, that included up to Pluto when we were in school. But now the kids that are off to school for the first day there today, um, they're learning about only the first eight planets in the solar system. So anything that lies beyond our solar system, we like to call it an exoplanet. So one of the James Webb Space Telescope's first big science announcements came out on the 25th of August. 
um, which announced that uh, the telescope had detected carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of an exoplanet, and that's the first time that's ever been done. Um, but the reason it's only now that we're getting some science results is because we're, we're taking our time with the science. Um, the mission partners, so that includes NASA as well as the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency, are very careful about what science announcements they decide to publish. They want to make sure that the results are peer-reviewed and accepted to be published in a reputable journal before they go out to the public. So that's why we're seeing lots of images first, and now we're slowly getting all the exciting uh, science that's coming out as well and the most recent one being that uh, we also got our first image of an exoplanet um, from James Webb which was quite exciting um, to be able to see that Webb's cameras and instruments are so precise that it can take pictures of a planet that's extremely far away um, which is just showing us what it's capable of. We're still learning how to use the instruments and what it can do so there's a lot that await us now. So what do we know about this particular planet? So the one that um, Webb decided to look at to see if it could actually take an image of it has a very fancy name, that being HIP65426B, uh, which is a bunch of letters and numbers that are combined together just because there are that many stars and planets out there. We need different ways of differentiating them. Uh, but this particular planet is about six to eight times the mass of Jupiter in our own solar system. Um, it's about as young as planets can go. It's about 15 to 20 million years old. But if you put that into comparison of our own Earth, which is 4.5 billion years old, um, it's, it's quite young. Uh, this planet is about 100 times farther from its star than Earth is from our own sun. So because it's so far away from its host star that it's orbiting around, uh, James Webb was able to easily separate the planet from the star and the images that it was taking. Um, so essentially this was just the first test of what Webb can do. It wasn't necessarily trying to get the cleanest, prettiest picture of a planet, but instead just to prove that it could do it. Um, and that's essentially what's happening now for most of the images and the science that Webb is doing. It's almost testing itself and testing the scientists to see what it's capable of doing. Uh, because we're only now about six weeks into regular science operations. So all the scientists are eager for their time. And this is uh, not a rocky planet. It's a gas giant. How do we know that? Um, so essentially, um, by looking at the planet and we're collecting light, we're able to tell what its atmosphere is like. So by knowing that it's a gas giant, it simply means it has no rocky surface. So not only does that mean that we couldn't live on it, we also would not be able to um, set down or lay a spacecraft there on it. Uh, but by imaging the uh, exoplanet in different filters by James Webb, most of those being in infrared light, um, we're able to tell that what gases are there and which ones are not. Um, that meaning we are also able to see that the gas exists fully throughout the planet. So if I were to drop you on top of the planet, you would fall all the way through. There's no rocky surface that could catch you there. So what keeps that together? And I've often wondered about this, you know, in terms of Jupiter and, and Neptune and uh, Uranus, that uh, they are gas giants. What keeps this concentration of gases together? 
So we, fortunately, with the Hubble Space Telescope, we've developed a lot of understanding as to how solar systems like our own have formed by looking at other systems when they're still forming. They're still very early. Um, this can include stars that are still being born or large masses of gas that start circling. Uh, so essentially, as there is a large mass of gas that starts circling, it gets hotter and hotter in the middle. And that middle part, of course, will eventually become a star. But there's still lots of gases around the outside. Um, that are still circling around that star that's growing and, and slowly becoming a star that we know like our sun to be today. Um, but of course, the gases that are closest to that sun or that star that's in the middle, rather, um, are being really heated quite hot. Hot enough that they actually become solid and rocky planets or terrestrial planets like we know them to be, um, like Earth or Mars, uh, Mercury and Venus. Those that are further out um, will stay as gaseous planets, so they will likely be a lot larger, but they're also going to be staying of gas. Um, they will have, you know, a, a more concentrated core or a center to them, but because there is so much gas that is still circling, they'll eventually congregate and make themselves into planets. But th there's also lots of other bodies. We know, of course, that moons will form, asteroids, comets. Um, lots of circular bodies that will exist around these planets, too. So by watching other solar systems form, we're learning more about our own as well. And I take it because um, it's younger, it, it, you're more likely to see a gas giant. Is that correct? That's right. So this is quite a, a young planet. Like I said, about 15 to 20 million years old from our estimates. But this is just our first test at taking a picture of it. So we're going to learn a lot more now that we've proven we can actually see it. And I think one of the coolest things is actually how we take a picture of it in the first place and learn that it is so young. Um, essentially, what Webb is looking at is the star that the planet is going around. And it fixates on that star for a really long time. And it waits for the planet to pass in front of the star. So it passes between the star and the telescope. And because it is far enough away, we can actually see the uh, light from that star dip just a tiny little bit when that planet passes in front of us. So when the lining is correct, we're able to see that that planet passes in front of the star. Um, and Webb has special technology in its instruments that allows it to block out all of the light from the star so that we can only see the planet that's passing in front of it, no matter how tiny or how young it might be. So it's quite impressive, all of the scientists and engineers that were able to pull this off. So we're just excited now that we've proven that we can do it. And uh, we'll be doing it for many, many more planets that are out there. Yes, because this isn't just about photography. This is about collecting data and, and observing it. Absolutely. Um, telescopes are like, I like to call them light collectors. Um, and everything we know from both the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes is because of light. Since we're not able to travel to a star or take samples from a galaxy, we depend on light or electromagnetic radiation to carry that information to us from different objects in space. In fact, we also communicate with these telescopes through radio waves, and this is how we get the data from them. Um, I mean, for example, the Hubble Space Telescope views objects in visible light as well as ultraviolet and infrared, um, whereas the James Webb Space Telescope primarily looks at objects in the infrared light. So um, we're able to see things in all different kinds of ways as also how we would see them with our own eyes as well as ways that we're not able to see them. Um, so in this way, I like to call telescopes light collectors. My guest today on On Target is the Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency. Bethany Downer will be back right after this. 
Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we're speaking with Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. And we've been talking about some of these images that have come out recently. And we just talked about the exoplanet. And you just made reference to that then, uh, Bethany, about these different filters, the different light uh, filters. What what difference does that make? I'm glad you brought this up because it's something that I'm I'm seeing people are asking on social media and the media is focused on it as well. People are wondering if the images that are being published are in fact real or are they colorized? Um, So we, you know, people are asking um, what it would look like if they could fly out on a spaceship and look at these objects. But that's almost equivalent to asking someone if you could shrink down to the size of a cell and look at the coronavirus. It's something that's not feasible. So we're trying to change something that we cannot see into what we can. Um, Infrared light can penetrate through clouds and dust in space. So that allows scientists to see things that were otherwise hidden. especially intriguing for scientists is that light from the early universe has been stretched and expanded. So for example, what was once ultraviolet light or visible light may now be infrared, which is why Webb is extremely helpful because that's what Webb can see. Uh, So in this way, I like to think that the instruments are helping us to expand our vision and go beyond what we're capable of because you and I, with our own eyes, we can only see an optical light. So when we're trying to bring out colors in these images, we're trying to bring them so that we could see them as if it was with our own eyes. We're not actually changing anything. Everything you're looking at is, in fact, real. So web images are so laden with data that they actually need to be scaled down uh, before they can be translated into visible light for you and I to appreciate. So most of the images need to be cleaned as well of artifacts. Um, so this could be anything from cosmic rays or reflections from other bright stars, uh, some diffraction spikes from the telescope's detectors as well. Um, so if you looked at a web image before the processing even happens, it'll almost look like a big black rectangle uh, peppered with some white little spots all over it. So for this reason, we, we don't like to say that we're colorizing or it's a false color image. Instead, we're using representative color of the infrared filters that are being used. So um, when you mentioned what the different filters can use for us, um, the longer infrared waves are usually assigned to redder colors, and the shorter infrared wavelengths are assigned to bluer colors. This is because blue and violet light has the shortest wavelengths on the spectrum that you and I can see, while red is the longest. Um, So we like to call that on the image processing team chromatic ordering. Um, And this way light is in split or the spectrum from uh, the galaxies and the stars that we're looking at is split into as many colors as we can in order to capture the full spectrum of light that we're able to see and appreciate. So it really is what we're looking at and it's true beauty. We just need to apply light that we can't see into light that we can. And it helps us to understand the composition of some of these celestial bodies. It sure can, and I like to say that Hubble and Webb are complementing each other in space because they're looking at things differently. Um, The Hubble Space Telescope is looking into space in optical light for the most part, is what we would see, while James Webb is looking at infrared, which can peer through dust and gas. So what Hubble has been taking images of now for over 30 years, Webb could look at the exact same object but see something completely different. So while there's been a lot of jokes going around on the internet that James Webb is that much better than Hubble, it's not. It's simply looking at the universe in a different way. So much of the images that we're publishing now for the public, we like to put it next to an image of Hubble. 
um, to show how James Webb is complementing what Hubble has already done. So it's building on decades of research and images and science that Hubble has already done uh, to complement what Webb can now do. And we're still learning what Webb can do, but we like to compare them to show that they're working together, they're complementing each other, and Webb is in no way trying to replace what Hubble has done, but instead to build upon it. Um, and that way we're actually able to learn what you know, get a more comprehensive idea of something that we're looking at uh, to be able to see it in different wavelengths. And you mentioned off the top uh, that uh, carbon monoxide, is it monoxide or dioxide, I'm sorry, <clears throat> was discovered. Carbon dioxide, yeah, in the atmosphere of an exoplanet found for the first time. And it's the filters that help to identify that too, is it not? That's absolutely right. So we use what's called a transmission spectrum. So we like to think that light can be broken down into a fingerprint. So when James Webb or Hubble is looking at an exoplanet that's far away, we're able to break down light um, into its fingerprint or into its spectrum. Um, and in that way, we're able to see what different elements are present in that atmosphere. So we're all, in, in some ways, I like to say that the images show us what something looks like, but the light and the data from the telescope is telling us what it's made of. Um, so that's how we were able to find carbon dioxide for the first time this way um, conclusively. So it's exciting, and we're really eager now to uh, do more research. And we know that's an area that the public is excited about because they want to know if there's any signs of life or if there's anywhere that would possibly be habitable out there. And Web is our best tool yet to be able to find it. When we come back after the break, I want to ask you about another one of these amazing images of the so-called Tarantula Nebula when we come back right after this. My guest today on On Target is Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency, Bethany Downer. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And our guest today is telling us all about space, Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the Eastern, uh, sorry, Eastern, European Space Agency, a little bit beyond Eastern, east of us anyway. Uh, Bethany Downer, of course, and uh, Bethany, you've been telling us about some of these extraordinary images coming out of the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, another one of the amazing images that uh, has come out recently is, is something called the tarantula nebula and i'm looking at this amazing image of these colors and swirling gases it appears and and pinpoints of stars and it it looks like a, a painting from the romanticism era what can you tell us about this and that's a great description. That's exactly what it looks like. Um, this was an image that was released on Tuesday, so brand new. Um, we like to call this uh, region uh, known as the Tarantula Nebula as a stellar nursery, meaning there's lots of newborn stars and there's stars that are just forming and being born. So it's an area of great interest for astronomers that want to study how stars are forming and how they evolve. Um, so Webb is able to capture all the dust and all the stars in this region, but also to reveal some hidden galaxies that we've never been able to see before because they were hidden by the dust that lies in there before it. Um, but this is roughly 160,000 light years away in what's called the Large Megalonic Cloud Galaxy. Um, so the tarantula nebula that's featured in the images um, is considered the largest as well as the brightest star-forming region in what's called the local group. And these are the galaxies that are closest to our own Milky Way. So despite being 160,000 light years away, that's considered quite close. Um, and it's also home to some of the hottest and largest stars that we know of. 
Uh, so it's a great area of interest for astronomers. And whenever we release new images from Webb now, we also like to release different viewpoints um, from Webb's different instruments. Um, so if you explore on the NASA or the European Space Agency websites, you'll see that there's different views of this region captured by the different instruments by the telescopes um, that capture it in different um, shades of infrared light and as well as composite images of putting those instruments together so that we can get a nice uh, comprehensive view of what it looks like. Um, and we're still trying to take a look at um, all these beautiful different images and what they can reveal to us. So anyone that looks at these images, while they're great at phone backgrounds, I also encourage people to download the highest resolution possible on a nice big screen and just start zooming in absolutely anywhere. And you'll find that you can keep zooming in almost endlessly at any of these points for these images that are coming out. Um, this was actually one of the backup images or backup targets rather for the uh, images that went out um, in the middle of July, which of course were shared all around the world um, when we revealed Webb's first images. So we were delighted to be able to put this one out um, yesterday. It's just amazing. It's a, <clears throat> I can't even explain it, but it, in the middle of this image, you can see through it. It's it, it, There's like a, I can't call it a void, I suppose, but it, there's an opening, if you will, and you can see through it to many, many things beyond. Exactly. That's something that Webb is great at is looking through dust and clouds because that's what infrared light can do which Hubble couldn't. Um, so we also like to publish as I mentioned the Hubble images next to it because you can see how they're complementing each other and how they look really different and because web is brand new and using new technology there is more detail and, and finer closeness that you can get um, in the resolution of these images with web so um, it, it's quite exciting to be able to find new things and I know of scientists that have been studying this area for years throughout their career with Hubble and they feel like they're starting from scratch now in the most amazing way because they're seeing it like they've never seen it before. Um, so it's exciting to see the public react, but it's also been um, quite special for me to see the excitement from the scientists as well, as they're the ones that are going to be making these groundbreaking discoveries for years to come. So what are we looking at here? Is this dust? Is it gas? I mean, some areas look denser than others. What exactly is it and how are the stars born within that? It's an area of gas and dust from which those stars are formed. That's exactly right. So um, when the gas and dust gets really compacted, um, that's where the stars are born. That's why we call it a stellar nursery is our go-to term, because it's areas that are rich in gas and dust like this that stars thrive. And that's where they're born. That's where there's lots of clusters. Um, because it's where they're happy. It's where there's lots of young, hot stars for them to thrive with. So uh, we're looking at um, stars that have um, only just recently started to evolve and some that are still being born. Um, and so we're looking very early on in, in the lives of the stars that are featured here. So as you say, relatively close, 160,000 light years away. That sounds far away, but it, you know, in terms of space, that's really close. Um, so were we able to see beyond this previous to this? So what, if you compare the Hubble image um, there next to it, you'll find that we're not able to see quite as many stars around it. We're mainly looking at dust and clouds because Hubble cannot see through dust and clouds, but James Webb can. And there were other telescopes that looked at um, this area before, at this nebula, but James Webb and Hubble are the best that can do so. Um, and that's because they're beyond the atmosphere of Earth. So while we do have telescopes that are on the Earth that could look at all of these objects, they are obstructed by the fact that we have Earth's atmosphere that's acting like a blanket that it has to travel through in order to look into space. But because Hubble and James Webb are in space, 
they're not obstructed by Earth's atmosphere, so they can look at the best detail that we can at these different objects. And so as we've been looking at this uh, nebula for the past several years, thanks to Hubble and some other space telescopes, um, we could not see nearly as many stars as what we've uh, had the privilege of being able to marvel at now. So we're all enjoying it and zooming in and finding new things um, that we hadn't before. Uh, James Webb is finding new galaxies and stars that we hadn't cataloged yet. Um, so astronomers have their work cut out for them for the foreseeable future, that's for sure. I just put on the uh, four res and oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> it, it, you, there's just no way to describe it. As these, these brighter points of light, which are clearly stars, but are, are they bigger stars? Are they stars beyond this? Are they sp stars within this nebula? Yeah. Yeah, this area here is actually home to some of the hottest stars that we know of, as well as some of the largest stars that we know of. Um, so there are different types of stars and different classifications, which reflect both um, their age, how they evolve, and their size and their color. Uh, but this particular nebula, nebula sorry, is home to some of the hottest um, so because we weren't able to reveal and see some of them until now, we're still learning about them. We're trying to make sure they're all cataloged and to get all of their data. Um, and like I said, so far we've been focusing on lots of the great images that have been coming from James Webb. So now is the time for the scientists to get to work on the data that is coming from the telescope too, because that takes a lot more time for them to work through. Overwhelming uh, when you look at it, and especially when you start zooming in, and, and you, like you say, you can continue to go on and on and on, and realizing that these are all these all these little points are are stars. Exactly right. I remember when the first images came out and they went viral back in the middle of July when the first images were shared. I mean, I'll be honest, I thought they would get coverage, but I did not think it was going to be as, as big as it was. It was the most special thing I've ever been part of is when those images first came out and that whole campaign preparing for it. But it was interesting to hear how the public reacted to it. They were definitely in awe by the beauty, but I think they also felt small because it's easy to reflect on ourselves um, when you're seeing things just at this magnitude, especially the first deep field image when we were looking at you know the farthest image ever taken of space um it's it's both beautiful and also sometimes a little bit scary to stare at these images for too long but i, I like to think it's a nice balance uh, it certainly um you know makes you aware <laughs> of your place in this Absolutely. extraordinary universe um when we um uh, not, no i'm gonna ask you about this now the cartwheel galaxy that's pretty cool it's another cool one. Um, it's another one that was actually hoping to be released back in July. So it was another backup that we um, were able to put out there afterwards. And it's called the Cartwheel Galaxy as its nickname, uh, simply because of the way that it appears. It, lo it looks like a cartwheel. It looks like an object that's spinning. Um, and this also, too, was a great image that revealed new details about how stars are formed. But it was also an area of interest because at the center is a, a huge black hole in the middle of the galaxy. Um, and it also has a couple of companion galaxies, too. And I, I also like to remind people, just look in the background of these images. These are thousands upon thousands of galaxies that are in the background of every single James Webb image that are going out now. So it really puts things into scale. But again, if you zoom in on any images, you could be uh, entrapped for quite a while. Is it possible, and given the vastness and the, the overwhelming, uh, I don't know, 
deepness of all of this, is, is it possible that we might be able to say, okay, here is a galaxy, here is a star, here is a planet where life is likely to occur? If there's a telescope or an instrument that can do it, then I think it's the James Webb Space Telescope. We have unprecedented detail and capabilities now to look at planets beyond our own solar system, um, most easily those that are close to us, of course, um, within uh, our own galaxy of the Milky Way. But we're, we're really trying to find um, signs of life as we know it to be. So I like to remind people that perhaps there are signs of life out there that aren't as we know it. And when we're looking for life out there, we're looking for signs of um, habitable life in that it could support water, meaning the planet can't be too hot or too cold, the Goldilocks zone, of course, um, a planet that can support liquid water, a planet that can support an atmosphere, oxygen. We're looking for things that would support life as you and I know it to be in that we could thrive. But it's also possible there are forms of life out there that don't need those conditions. So already we're limiting ourselves in that we're looking for conditions that we know it to be. Um, so that's what we're primarily looking for right now because we only have one point of reference, and that's the life on planet Earth. So that's what we're looking for right now. Um, and I do think that there are, there's stronger hope than ever that we could find it. Um, but we also have lots of exciting space missions that are taking place much closer to home in our own solar system, on Mars, on different moons for both Jupiter and Saturn. I think there's lots of interesting conditions and exciting missions that are coming up that are going to be digging deeper, um, whether we find signs of life now or maybe there were signs of life in the past. I think it's a really exciting sign uh, or time for astronomy because just about everything that's being done is a first, which uh, most industries uh, can't really say. I think it's quite exciting uh, when it comes to space in that way. It is indeed. Bethany Downer is our guest today, Chief Science Communications Officer for the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency. We'll be back right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And our guest today is Bethany Downer. She is the Chief Science Communications Officer for both the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes for the European Space Agency. And uh, by now, Bethany, a lot of people are familiar with this amazing image of the so-called cosmic cliffs. And I'm noticing that you were talking about the difference between uh, visible light and versus infrared and um, the difference between Hubble and James Webb. And when you see those two images side by side, side by each, as we like to say in Newfoundland, the Hubble versus the uh, James Webb, wow. Uh, you can really see those differences. Indeed. It's almost like we can peer through um, with James Webb what Hubble was seeing before because with infrared light we can look through um, gas and dust and, of course, the new James Webb image of the cosmic cliffs uh, that was released with uh, Webb's first image package back on the 12th of July. Um, it's just full of detail, too. I mean, Hubble's, of course, a, a fantastic and the most, you know, detailed and productive science instrument humans have ever built, but that now um, is sharing space with James Webb, too. So uh, it's great to see them complement each other in that way, but uh, that, that first set of images that went out mid-July is uh, still being appreciated and circulated because they, they really have that wow factor. 
How are these images, uh, I guess, selected? That's part of what you do. <laughs> and as a journalist, you know, we try to select images that, that tell a story uh, visually. So how are these, because Im- I'm sure you're getting bombarded with, a, you know, piles and piles of images. What images do you decide, wow, this is the thing that's really going to grab the attention of the public? So the selection of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope began about five years ago um, from the top scientists, um, both at the uh, highest level for NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, who all came together and said, this is best reflective of what Webb can do. So that's why when the first package of images went out um, on July 12th, there was a variety of images. Uh, That cosmic cliffs images that you were just referring to as an area of gas and dust where stars are being born. Um, There was also an image of a southern ring nebula, which is an example of a star that's dying. Uh, We also had a galaxy cluster, Stefan Quintet, which was a group of galaxies together. And finally, there was also the uh, deep field image, which had thousands upon thousands of galaxies captured in the very, very early universe together. So they were selected because they they tell the story of what Webb can do and of different objects and different stages um, of their cosmic life. Um, And it was also a test for the astronomers and the instruments on the telescope themselves to see that they could actually do it. Uh, The turnaround time for capturing these images and getting them out to the public in mid-July was really crunched. Uh, We put them out there as soon as we possibly could, but the selection of these targets began several years ago. Um, and it was only decided which ones would definitely be going out about a couple weeks before uh, the world got to see them. So it was a, a very, very crazy campaign that I'm, I will forever be grateful that I was part of um, because it was really special to see just what an impact they did have when they uh, did go public. When you and I spoke in January, you you itemized some of the things that, um, you know, some of the questions, I suppose, that uh, James Webb, the uh, scientists are hoping to answer through some of these images. But what are we hoping to find? Are, Are we, now that we're starting to get these images and they're really quite extraordinary, are we just... Uh, seeing what we can see or are we targeting certain areas to say this is the question we have and this is uh, hopefully the answers we'll find? So, I mean, there's, in general, there's four science themes that uh, James Webb will be looking at. So one of them, of course, being planets beyond our own solar system or exoplanets, uh, the life cycle of stars, um, the life cycles of galaxies, as well as the early universe. Now, those are extremely broad when it comes to space science. Um, but the way that we choose what Webb is looked at um, is that scientists submit proposals ahead of time. So it was uh, over a year ago now that scientists got together and submitted proposals on what they wanted to spend time on for James Webb's first year of science to be able to look at and to be able to designate time uh, using different instruments of looking into space. And you have to imagine those scientists at the time, first of all, didn't even know if the telescope would successfully launch. Would it get to its home out uh, beyond the orbit of the moon? Would it even unfold? Would it even turn on? They, they had no idea what Webb could do, let alone if it would even get there and work. So they, they had a lot of questions left to them as to whether or not, um, you know, they would be able to conduct the science that they were proposing. So our first year of science, I like to say, it's a lot of testing and calibration to see what Webb can do and really test the limits of what these instruments are capable of. Um, for that reason, I think the proposals are going to be extremely 
extremely, extremely competitive for Webb's second year because now we know Webb can work and it's exceeding our expectations. So those are the four broad sizes categories, but essentially we're looking for things that we don't know. Um, think of when Hubble launched. It was the year 1990, and the world looked very different than it does today. We didn't even know that there were planets beyond our own solar system. So when Hubble was built, it wasn't designed to study other planets beyond our own solar system because we weren't even positive they existed. But we learned how to use the telescope and to adapt it so that it could study planets that were, uh, you know, beyond those that were in our own solar system. So in this way, I think Webb is going to show us things that we don't even know about. We're going to learn how to adapt um, and using its instruments to teach us things that we didn't even know that we could research. Um, but there are general areas that we want to learn more about, some of them being black holes or uh, right after the Big Bang. We want to know what the universe looked like, how the first stars and galaxies formed. Webb has already surprised us that we're finding full and complete galaxies much closer to the Big Bang than we expected. And Webb has only been operating for a few weeks now. Uh, so in this way, I think Webb is going to surprise us and excite us by showing us things that we have no idea how to conceive of yet, similar to what Hubble did in the early 90s. Can we, because we are looking back in time, it's the amount of time that it takes for the light to reach us that we're, we're looking at here, which determines the dis distance, but <clears throat> um, do we, are we getting a sense of how the, um, how things might have changed since the images are, you know, I, I don't even know how to explain it. <laughs> it goes My beyond God. our understanding of things, doesn't it? It really does. It's, it's challenging what we already know. Um, I mean, the, the Big Bang Theory is the general understanding now as to where things came from, from what they know it to be today. Um, and, and Webb's research so far is supporting the Big Bang model, and it's showing that the first galaxies, um, however, were smaller, but they grew larger over time. But there was more complete galaxies earlier on than we expected. We thought it would take longer for these first galaxies to form. We're, we're looking so far back, we're, we're surprised to see what it is that we're looking at. Um, so we're, we're surprised already to find that the early universe has plentiful galaxies that are there and a little more massive and structured than we expected. And this doesn't mean that the Big Bang Theory is wrong. It simply means that some of the cosmology and astrophysics that the Big Bang follows requires a little bit of tweaking in terms of our understanding and how it is that we're going to be pursuing research. But that's all the fun of science, I like to think. And, and we have no idea what is going to be around the corner. And like I said, there's not many industries out there where we can say everything that's being done as a first. And that's one of the things that I love about space, whether it's space science or human space exploration, just about everything that's being done as a first, which is what keeps me excited. It's humbling uh, for sure and, and exciting at the same time. And well, I guess what I was trying to say is, you know, if we're looking at an image of, let's say, the Tarantula Nebula from 160,000 light years away, um, has that nebula changed in that length of time? Or is space-time different? It surely can. We're looking at it as it was 160,000 um, years ago, because that's how long it took light to get to us. And light is traveling extremely, extremely fast, roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. 
So if you think of just how big space is, it took the light from that nebula that long to get to the detectors of the James Webb Space Telescope. So in that time, it is surely likely that something has happened. There might have been stars that have died. There could be supernova explosions. There could be new stars that are born. Um, so in this way, it's almost like we like to call Webb is like a time machine. Um, and so I think that it's quite special and humbling to be able to look at the universe that way, uh, but also allows us to have a, a big imagination, which keeps it fun, too. Well, as you can probably tell, I could talk about this uh, all day, but unfortunately, we only have an hour allotted to us. Uh, Bethany, I really appreciate your time. As more images uh, become available, I'd love to get you back on again and you can explain them to us. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for another show that I have uh, working on in the hopper. Dave, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening, everyone.